Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. When you are determined to achieve something and you have laser focus and you refuse to take no for an answer and you refuse to take your eye off your goals, you usually achieve them. Most people just don't want to work that hard, but I like working hard. Ladies and gentlemen, back again, part two with your next president of the United States, Ben Glebe. So nice. You had to hear it and in, hear it twice. <laughs> That's right. Ben, <laughs> I can't help but ask. I'm sure the audience would want to know this. What qualifies you to not only run for president of the United States, but for our audience to feel safe, feel comfortable and feel confident to vote for you to make the kind of changes that they want in our country and the world? I love that question. First of all, and probably my best political bona fide, my best character vouch is that I've been a longtime client of Barry Katz. <laughs> and you're a great judge of talent and character. And all the greatest have worked with you. And so um, I think that you know at least I'm no slouch right off the bat with that. Well, I've always been blown away by you and I don't want to derail this question but I think our audience should know that I feel like I've known you longer or as long as anybody in the business 100% since I was 18 years old yeah so I feel like the reason why I'm doing this with you where I've never done this before is because I do believe in you, and you showed me recently, I guess we'll talk about that a little bit later, of what the power of your mind and your belief, and when you set your goals to something, how you make them happen. It's incredible, and I just want our audience to know what you're going to give them and how you are qualified to make them feel safe, because everybody wants to feel safe. It's not just feeling safe from guns. It's just feeling safe in what's happening in the country and the world. And I think they'd love to know why they should vote for you. Sure. People want to know they're in good hands, of course. And, and uh, 
they've not been in good hands for a long time. So that's a, one of the most important questions probably that's possible. And um, I'll answer it like this. Um, firstly, I think it is so important that we reframe, like I said a few days ago on the, on the part one, that we change the way we look at who our leaders should be. Because we've had these people that are career politicians and who have the traditional qualifications of being in office for a million years and not creating systemic change and not getting things done and losing their common touch. And we keep reelecting those people. So I think you can throw out the traditional qualifications for what people look for in a president of the United States. That stuff's not working. Governors and senators have not proven to be able to create the change that people need. Again, why? Because we're valuing the wrong things. We keep saying, oh, Mayor Pete went to Harvard and is a Rhodes Scholar. Yeah, so did a lot of our other presidents. But most people didn't go to Harvard and are Rhodes Scholars. And so right off the bat, even from college years, they couldn't relate to regular people. So how is that better? They don't know what people need. I struggled just recently, two years ago, to pay my bills. That's how you know you can trust me just on a core level because I have the same struggles as everybody. Not just I understand them intellectually. I have them and I need to change these laws so that not only their lives can be better, but my life can be better so that I can provide better for me and for my girlfriend who's moving into my house soon. And so that we can- She hasn't have, moved in yet? She's not moved in yet, but in about a week. It looks like she's moved in. Thank you very much. She's been putting her, her touch on it already. <laughs> so that's, I think, so important on a core level is that I'm just a regular dude who has the same problems everybody out there does. And so don't you want to try that as a leader? But of course you don't want like some random idiot as your regular dude. There's a big range of regular dudes out there. But I'm not the idiot, I'm the host of Idiot Test. I challenge the idiots. You know, Trump had a show about firing people on The Apprentice, you're fired. And my show's about using your brain better and not be an idiot. So of the two options, which one's your better choice? And so what my qualifications are to prove that I'm not just a regular random idiot out there, but I'm one of the smarter idiots out there is that aside from being a stand-up comedian for forever, I've been a political commentator, as you know, for over a decade. I was on NPR, Southern California's NPR KPCC with Pat Morrison for over seven years. We won a Golden Mike Award for our comedic coverage of our political scene, trying to, again, make people laugh and through laughter comes truth, right? And calling our politicians out and keeping them honest for so long. My podcast for the last seven or eight years has been about politics. I chose a podcast that made me not the cool kid in the comedy club because people don't usually like talking about politics. And I could have had just celebrities on like everybody else does and chat about my penis the whole time and chat about sex the whole time. And I have those conversations sometimes too and on my podcast sometimes too. But I also wanted to do both together because I want people that never cared about politics before to care about politics for the first time in their lives. And that's the best message I've ever received is when people message me saying, I never watched the news or cared about the news until your podcast but I get the news through your podcast because you speak about the world in a way that I actually understand. You're not speaking over my head. And that's why I like to cuss and talk about things in dirty, gritty ways because that's what people are engaged by. And that's how you can speak to everyday Americans. And again, because I am, that's just who, my, who I am. It's what my, my mindset's always been. And so, which also is a quick plug, I must say, which is why I, I, I again have to please him implore people to go to Glebe2020.com, G-L-E-I-B 2020.com right now on your phone 
and donate a dollar or whatever you can afford so we can hit 65,000 donations to make the debate stage so that you can have a regular voice on the debate stage for once and not a year and a half before the election only have career politicians and multimillionaires who don't care about you on that stage. Have a real dude who will keep it honest and make you laugh. You'll get two for one for your dollar. It's a pretty amazing deal and see if you can get me on that debate stage. So there's been that with the podcast where I've also brought on a comedy podcast four-star generals, General Wesley Clark. I've had Nancy Pelosi and Diane Sawyer and Senator, the, the late Senator Frank Loudenberg on my podcast and Maxine Waters and, and all of these mixed in with amazing celebrities like Brian Cranston and it's called Last Week on Earth. You can subscribe to it. Megan McCain talking to both sides, debating with Tommy Lahren. I debated, I reach across the aisle as a civilian, debated all the issues of the 2016 election with Tommy Lahren, who's the firebrand polar opposite of the extreme right side of our politics in this country. I sit down with her and talk to her and try to find solutions. I host a monthly show at the Improv called We the People that just debuted at Politicon this last year where I moderate a talk with two on the left and two on the right, trying to find answers to our problems, compromises and solutions. No politician has a background of doing that. No, no pundit, no news network does that truly. They yell at each other and they cut to commercial. We try to find a resolution on every topic. I've been on CNN over the course of the, of the past years, written for Huffington Post, regular on, I co-anchored ABC News with Amna Nawaz, my friend who's now one of the, one of the correspondents and sometimes co-anchor of PBS NewsHour. I have been on Fox News and spoken truth to power in their face. I'm gonna, rele- I'm gonna be releasing a clip soon where I spoke truth directly to the most powerful Wall Street executives recently in New York at a conference I was asked to host as a comedian and I decided to make a public statement. I will fight for you because I am you. And I think that's so important for people to realize is that I'm a regular dude, but I also know my shit. So there's not an instance that I will be put into where I do not know how to respond, where I do not know the facts of the situation or how to best handle it. I guarantee you're in good hands under my administration if I'm so honored to be elected as president. And I guarantee you that either way that it works out, I will fight for you the whole way and at least help change the conversation to something that represents your needs and your struggles much more than career politicians can do. So again, Glebe2020.com, please give us a buck and let's see if I can get on that debate stage. We only have three and a half weeks left now to make that, and we can get there if people donate. Let's talk about your relationship with the public. Sure. I think one of the things that would be really, really interesting is would be to share with your audience three things in your life personally or professionally that are a concern of yours, just like regular people that are listening, something that gives you anxiety, something that weighs heavily on you that your audience can hear and say, hey, you know what? This is what bothers me and this is what gives me that pain in my stomach and I haven't overcome it yet and I want to. It's a great question. There's more than three things. There's so many that I think we all deal with and our politicians are not moving fast enough to fix. Paying my bills. Being able to take the rising costs in this country and the fact that wages have not kept up with inflation and people are being paid the same amount they were years if not decades ago and 
are not being able to make ends meet. People are working two, three, and four jobs, which I do. I work 10 jobs at a time. Mine aren't all full time, but I'm constantly trying to make an extra dollar here and there to stay afloat and be able to put some savings away. I know directly how hard it is to save for your future. Most Americans can't handle a $400 emergency expense that comes up. I can luckily barely handle that. I can I can cover that, but I don't have much save for my future. I've achieved the American dream in that I own a home, which most people struggle to do, and I'm so proud of that. But I think that's all we should want out of our leaders is somebody that's achieved the American dream, but the accessible American dream, the real one, not the one of dream of becoming famous or becoming a billionaire. That's not going to happen for 99.999% of people. So just being able to provide for yourself and your family is something that I know very well how difficult that is. And we need to move to a living wage. And I also am proposing a cost of living tax refund. So for people who cannot make ends meet and are working full-time jobs, we will expand the earned income tax credit to give people money back in their pockets yearly or monthly. You can choose whichever payout style you want to help pay your bills on a monthly basis. That is so important because why should the spoils only go to the rich? And the rich keep getting a bigger and bigger percentage all the time of the pie in this country. And they're just keeping more and more of it for themselves. So I will make sure that we enact policies that put more money in the pockets of everyday Americans. So that's one. Two, healthcare. As you know, I had a huge health scare recently about a year and a half ago or two years ago now. So your found, girlfriend moving in? Yeah. And all of a sudden she realizes that I eat jelly beans late at night. I got a jelly bean dispenser here on my table and I was getting fat, Barry. Um, that is another one. My weight fluctuates. I'm the white male Oprah. It's pretty insane. <laughs> Do you have a wheelbarrow somewhere with all your fat? Here? Sometimes when I come home late at night after a, after a Carl's Jr. run, Carmel does wheel me around in a barrow. What's the heaviest you've been and the lightest you've been in the last four years? In the one swing that I made when I went on my big crash diet and I was vegan for four months and now I'm eating tons of meat and jelly beans again, but I went from 221 to 176. It was a 45 pound swing. And now I'm back at 205. So I'm pretty much all the way back to where I was. But um, And what so, weight does your girlfriend like you at? She likes me at whatever weight I am at because she's really nice and she lies to me. <laughs> um, so, yeah, just keeping even yourself healthy is a struggle that most people have. I struggle to get to the gym, but then health care is so important. So I had this health scare where I found a tumor under my ear in my parotid gland, my saliva gland, and it was benign, thank God. But 10% of the time it becomes a fatal aggressive cancer if you don't address it. So I had health care. I had health coverage through Kaiser, but I didn't feel confident that I was having the best surgeons there. And so I had to go and find other surgeons who charge astronom astronomical amounts of money and I couldn't afford it. And I was lucky that I was able to like say, hey, if I tweet for you guys and do Instagram stories, can you give me a discount? And I was lucky that I'm in a union. I think I might, I don't know for sure if I'm the only, but I think I might be the only presidential candidate who's in a union in SAG-AFTRA. And I've always made sure that every TV show I work on, all the talent on camera is, is SAG after union talents, the Screen Actors Guild. And after is the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists that merged recently. And they're the union that protects artists and on camera performers and fights for them to have fair wages and to make sure they don't get railroaded even worse than they still currently do by the powers that be and the president of SAG after is Gabriel Carteris, who used to be Andrea Zuckerman from Beverly Hills 90210. 
So the, the world does twist in on itself in weird ways, but uh, very self-referential. But um, go union. But um, so I was able to get extra health insurance through SAG and that was able to reduce the cost. Even though these surgeons were out of network, I was able to reduce the cost somewhat, but I still had to pay out of pocket a huge amount of money. That was a real struggle. It ended up costing me many thousands, close to $10,000 in the end. And I luckily was able to kind of pay that, but that's what led to my not being able to pay bills then months later when my TV show went away. Because again, cable TV shows, as you well know, Barry, pay sometimes six bucks and six bucks on a bucket of chicken. <laughs> I mean, this you think you get on TV and you're rich and it's just the biggest lie in the world. You get on TV and often they don't pay you anything. Go on the Today Show for two years, it's free every single time because they mention a club date coming up or a TV show and they consider it promotional. You know, my TV show went away and instantly I was like, oh, I can go drive 60 miles to Pacoima to do a stand-up set for $60? Count me in. So knowing that we need to fix our healthcare system from the first hand perspective where we need to, and I believe we need to, of course, ensure everybody by expanding Medicare, but I believe we need to keep it mixed with our private healthcare market. Cause I think it's also great in America that you can, if you're willing to invest more money when, if you are, are able to, or able to scrape it together and you need a better doctor for something that you can pay for it. You don't have just the government option. So I'm in favor of a Medicare for all, hybrid where it mixes with the private market because also Obamacare is so complex that it's so in, in, intertwined in our economy now that unwinding it would be a real risk to our economy and could crater our economy. So healthcare is too. The environment is one that is not being handled at all and it's the greatest risk of our lives. Our planet literally is on the brink of destruction. The UN says we have 12 years left to reverse course drastically or our planet will not be habitable for humans for much longer. And no one is taking it very seriously because again, they're stuck in the system. It's ridiculous we're not shifting to renewable energies at the fastest clip possible and getting off fossil fuels at the fastest rate possible. So I breathe the air, I travel the country, I fly coach, I don't fly in private jets like a lot of politicians do. And I know how important it is to protect our environment because it's getting hot and it's getting hard to live in this world with risk of mass migration from the coast if things continue and it'll be overcrowding. And it's a very urgent problem. That's a problem we all face that politicians should realize and they don't. And if I can give you just one last one, I want to share that I know so much what it's like also to struggle with our our very flawed education system in our country. Because I didn't go to Harvard, I went to what I think is one of the top schools in the country, but it's a top 40 school. We need to not just care about the what elite anymore. That? UC San Diego. And I was an honors thesis graduate there and a commencement speaker, but also partied a lot. And we, I was lucky to get to a good school there, but our public schools getting up, elementary and high school, they're, they're very behind the times. Our education system ranks very low on a global scale. And that's the future. That's how you raise the future. And all so many kids grow up not enjoying school, not liking it. I hated school as a kid. I, I didn't hate going, but I just wasn't motivated because school is presented in a punitive way. And so kids are told you study this or you get in trouble or you fail, you get kicked out. We don't teach context. I want to teach context to make sure that kids understand why they should care about these classes you're about to learn. And so they opt in. 
So they actually choose on their own volition. Oh, wow, my life will be better in these ways and I'll be smarter if I learn this. She's inviting me into this, this teacher, and, and instead of forcing me to do something, that's how you get people motivated. I also will create, uh, make sure our, our national curriculum teaches life skills that are never ever taught. People struggle financially because they don't teach, you don't learn one finance class, one budgeting class, one taxes class in your entire education. Instead, it's just memorize facts. So you can be a better worker in factories or, or at an office cubicle where you don't get to think for yourself and get to make your own destiny, which is very related to the last one I'll mention. There's so many I could go on and on. I know we need to cut to the other part of the interview is just um, the fact that so many of our jobs are being taken by robots. Automation is coming and it's going to displace millions of jobs and no candidate, even Andrew Yang, who's suggesting a universal basic income of a thousand dollars a month to replace people's jobs. Most people don't make $12,000 a year. It doesn't do the trick. I would actually fight to maintain a human workforce. Crazy me. I value human beings, Barry. I value a human workforce and I will fight to make sure our industries don't get rid of humans wherever possible. And when it's necessary that we slow the process we keep humans involved wherever possible. And we, when the jobs do have to go away in certain industries, we make sure we retrain and find jobs for those people so they are not left out in the cold and the robots take over. Because if you ever see any science fiction story ever, letting the robots take over does not work out well. <laughs> it's the basic fact we all know, yet every politician is like, eh, let the robots take over, we'll figure it out. That's the opening five seconds of each Terminator movie where you got robot skulls and then Arnold Schwarzenegger's naked in your face suddenly. And you got to look at a naked built man with a very aggressive accent. So that's not the future I want. And I don't think it's the future you want. So if people want a different life, please just donate a dollar at Glebe2020.com and let's get me on the debate stage and see if our politics can change if we truly do have a government by the people or not. Or if that's more bullshit. Before we go... I think it's important for the audience to know your resolve and your persistence and just one example of how you are built for making change and making things happen. And I would love you, if you would, to share the amazing story of the Telethon for America. I love that. Yeah, I forgot about maybe my best uh, resume bit, I suppose. Um, and you can tell part of the story, too, because you came on board and helped us make it happen and, and executive produce the Telethon for America with us. But um, I had an idea because we have horrible low voter turnout in this country. And we had such crucial midterm elections that were coming up this past November. And I wanted to do whatever I could to encourage people of both parties in a nonpartisan way to go out and just vote. Have your voice heard in our elections. And no one does it. And so I came up with an idea to flip the telethon on its head. Reinvent the telethon. First time it's ever been reinvented, really. To be the first telethon ever to raise zero dollars. And we succeeded, Barry. <laughs> Instead, we took pledges from our celebrity phone bank for people to just vote the next day. And to form voting squads to bring their friends to the polls with them. But before that happened, mm -hmm. Ben came up with this amazing idea. That was the good news. Mm -hmm. The bad news is he came up with the idea about 30 days before he <laughs> wanted to do it. That is correct. Yet he was convinced that he could get people on board, major influencers, 
major internet and social media networks that's right involved and people to produce it and raise money to produce it mm-hmm. and he also thought that he could get huge huge stars but as i found i believe less than nine days before <laughs> the date that he wanted to do it he had no network no infrastructure <laughs> no money and one star chelsea handler mm-hmm. and himself Will you tell our audience how it was possible that it all came together with over 95 stars, the money to produce it, Comedy Central and YouTube involved, and at the YouTube studio space, and there were probably over 50 different people helping to produce it. 150. Tell our audience how nine days or less, there's nothing and accept an idea and a vision that it's going to happen. And how did you make it happen? Because that will let them know how you're capable of doing things. Thanks, Barry. It's the best example of how, of the kind of rapid change that I can bring and the kind of things that when I put my mind to something I can achieve. Um, I had this great idea that I really thought could help influence voter turnout. And our goal was to help create historic voter turnout and especially among young people. And so, like you said, I had the idea 30 days before and I started talking to people and a couple people were interested and I made a technology partner, but we had no space. And then I got YouTube to donate their huge production facilities about three weeks before. So we had a space and then we had a showrunner and they came in for a day and they said, wait, are you kidding? You have nothing done here? We're out. And they bounced. A famous showrunner just kind of bailed on us. And we now were literally about 11 days, I think, before the event and had no showrunner, no budget. At the 11th or 10th day before, we find, I convinced this company to, well, me and Hannah Lincoln Hoker and Rick Sorkin were working together um, for this idea that I created. We're able to convince XQ, Lorene Powell Jobs and Mark Echo's company to donate our first chunk of our budget and raised like a huge amount there. And as you know, TV shows like this take a year to put together, not 30 days and not the most of it in 11 to nine days. And we got then about 40% of our budget in with that first one. We still have not enough money to do this at all. Then I think the audience should know that you got the commitment for the money. Oh, it's correct. But that money did not come in. Until like two days before. That's correct. And so we just had, in theory, not even written agreement, just a verbal agreement for 40% of the budget with 11 days to go. Then you helped us find a new showrunner who could come in and put it together. The Mant brothers, Neil Mant. Yeah, the amazing Neil Mant who came in and helped us save the day. And I was I had to delegate and trust that you'd be able to find us somebody great. And then you found us somebody wonderful. And you came out working in the office every day and helping us produce this thing. And then I was able to, uh, through another friend of mine, Tina Mirafarsi, I asked her if she could help us find somebody. And she put us, in t- it's about talking to people and convincing people, getting them inspired on your vision, which is something that I would do for the country. And she said, you know what, I'm going to call for you the CEO of Michelle Obama's When We All Vote organization. And we got on a conference call and I was able to convince them to invest a huge amount and fill up another 40% of our budget. And now we're at 80% in theory, seven days only before the event did they agree to give us that amount of money. So now I get Chelsea Handler convinced to come and join and help us. And she starts helping us get some celebrities. I'm asking every single celebrity I know in the world on my phone, 
constantly texting them, begging them, getting into fights with longtime friends that don't want to be political. I'm like, it's an apolitical event. We're just encouraging people to vote, getting into literal fights with, with friends of mine who are now the biggest stars in the world and frayed my relationships because you had to do it for the country, you got to do what you got to do. And you were reaching out to people and getting us people. And all of a sudden, then we made a partnership with Comedy Central. And then I convinced on the phone three days before Funny or Die to come on board and cross promote and broadcast an event with Comedy Central. They would never do that, do the same event with two competing comedy companies. And I gave one on a rant on that phone call about how you have to sometimes put po politics aside and business aside and just do for the greater good of the country. And he said, not only am I in, when are you running for president? That's what he said on that call when we were meeting about who should host the event two days before. And Wendy Clint gave us the phone to call. And so then we got um, them on board. Then we, I convinced my friend at Lyft to sponsor the social activism part to sponsor rides for all the people. And then we got the technology partner on board and we had to figure out how to do reverse phone banking because I was talking to my buddy Scooter Braun on the phone. And he's like, your phone banks will not work. You don't have the money. Scooter Braun, of course, the manager of New Kids on the Block. I don't know if Nuke is on the block, a manager of maybe them too, but Kanye West, Ariana Grande, um, Justin Bieber, uh, now Demi Lovato, all the biggest stars in the world. And he gave me, because he produced a lot of big telethons. And so we flipped the way the telethon works and the calls went out once people made a pledge on our website and then got everybody so motivated to do this thing. We ended up with a million viewers, almost a million. We ended up with 36,000 pledges to vote the next day. And then voting squads were formed for many of those that exponentially increased that number. And celebrities, I ended up co-hosting it with Olivia Munn because we offered people to co-host it. Nobody wanted to co-host it even. They didn't know three days before, literally, on Friday before the, two, before the Monday show. Arsenio, he didn't want to do it. After George Lopez, he didn't want to do it. So I ended up hosting it with Olivia Munn who comes on board. And Olivia Munn, the day of... Got sick. Got sick and called and said... I might not make it. I might not make it. And so I called Sophia Bush. And I'm like, can you host in case she can't? And she's like, of course I'll be there for you. This cause is amazing. And then all of a sudden, we come to showtime and... We'll tell our audience who you had on the lineup. Oh, yes, I will. I walk into the room. We're three minutes till air. I'm going towards the restroom. I have to pee real quick. Natalie Portman walks into the building. She's like, I'm like, Natalie Portman. Hey, I'm Ben Gleep. She goes, thank you for doing this. I'm like, she knows who I am. What's going on here? I go into the restroom and Deborah Messing's at the sink. We both take a selfie together. Chelsea calls me, Chelsea Handler. She's running late. She'll be there soon. Supposed to open the show. We have to adjust that. Out of the stall comes Jane Fonda with her pants still unbuttoned. I know, I walked out. You I, walk out of the I stall. I meet Jane Fonda with her pants around her ankles. <laughs> and then Natalie Portman walks into the bathroom and I said, it's the classic four together again, plus Barry Katz. <laughs> Wish I got that photo. And then we go live on the air and we have a show filled with a celebrity phone bank and participants from around the country of Natalie Portman, Charlize Theron, Justin Theroux, uh, uh, Constance Wu, Aisha Tyler, uh, Jane Fonda, Chelsea Handler, Mary McCormick, Amy Schumer, Ray Romano, Larry King, Dr. Phil, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Pete Davidson, uh, correspondents from The Daily Show, um, everyone. I mean, who else? Lonnie Love came Jessica Alba. Jessica Alba. Um, every, these, the most amazing people in all of Hollywood came on board. Rosario Dawson. Nick Kroll. Nick Kroll. Nick Swardson. All the Nicks. 
We had so many famous <laughs> Nicks on this thing. I know we're leaving people off, but it was just incredible. I could not believe it. People who came in and did so many different things for you. It was just amazing that it all came together. Thanks, Barry. And you worked your ass off too. And you gave me a great compliment at the end of that thing. You said to me, I've never had a client on anything like this ever in all of my, I think it's 87 years you've been a manager. <laughs> Truly, I am saying this and I have my hand on my heart. I have never seen anything come together like that. You talk about turning no's into yeses. There were a thousand no's and you were never taking no for an answer and you made it happen and it was incredible. Thanks, Barry. And that's how I would be as a president. I just didn't sleep until I got it done. And when you are determined to achieve something and you have laser focus and you refuse to take no for an answer and you refuse to take your eye off your goals, you usually achieve them. Most people just don't want to work that hard, but I like working hard. Awesome. You have something final to say to the audience before you go to the part two of your re-release of your podcast? Yeah, you're about to hear more embarrassing things about me. So just out of empathy for how much, how much I'm about to bear my soul for you, please, if you can afford a dollar or whatever you can afford, five, 10, 20 bucks would be incredible, whatever you can spare because we're going against millions and millions of dollars of these campaigns of career politicians and machines and we need to be able to take ads out and travel and around the country. But our most important goal is to get 65,000 donations. We have just three and a half weeks left. If you can donate a dollar at Glebe2020.com, G-L-E-I-B 2020.com. And uh, we will have a chance and spread the word to your friends. And if you can help us get there, if you can get 10 of your friends in your town to sign up, we need 200 of those donations to be in each of 20 states. I'll be on that debate stage and you would have made a real impact on your democracy and changing the way it's done. I know I'm looking forward to it. Ben, congratulations, good luck. Thank you, Barry. I know you are a worthy, worthy choice. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast and breaking precedent by having a part two new interview. And um, after all the commissions over the years, I'm so looking forward to your generous donation at Glebe2020.com. Ooh, that's going to be interesting. (laughs) Thank you so much, everybody. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a -a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Hey, everybody. And I wanted to thank some of the sponsors on the podcast, starting with AquaTrue. If you haven't bought this countertop water purification system, 
you have to do so. It's incredible. It turns tap water into your favorite bottled water instantly. It saves you thousands and thousands of dollars. It gets rid of all those plastic bottles that you have in your trash. Thousands and thousands of listeners have bought these. Everybody loves it. Not one complaint. It's incredible. I haven't bought a bottle of water in years since I got this, and you won't either. And if you go right now to industrystandardwater.com and type in the promo code Barry, you'll immediately get a $100 discount. A $100 discount and start enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever had. I guarantee it. Lastly, the air doctor. I don't know what the air inside your house is like, but the air inside my house, it feels heavy at times before I got this product. And now it got rid of all the bad air in my house, the dust, the pet hair, the pollen. It just gets rid of all the contaminants circulating through your home. And for me, when I got this product, it was amazing the difference that I found in the air in my house. And it's normally $600 and you can check Amazon right now and you'll see. But for all of you listening today, I can offer you $300 off. $300. Just go to airdoctorpro.com and type in the promo code Barry. That's airdoctorpro.com, promo code Barry, and save $300 and get rid of all the bad toxins in your house and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. Tell me when you noticed that the speech impediment was done. What happened where it finally finished? Was it when you started doing stand-up comedy? Or there has to be a moment where it's over. Yeah, I've never had a problem, crazily enough, with my speech during stand-up comedy. Um, so the whole time, even the first time I did a set during college, it was I was fine. I always felt very comfortable doing stand-up for some reason, even though in my talk show I would have blocks. For some reason, that stand-up stage, I always felt very comfortable. Um, but throughout college, I still had those blocks, and it would still come and go. I mean, and as you said, my, my live Glebe shows grew to the point where I had 3,000 students in the crowd at UCSD, and literally I was the opening ceremony for Sun God Festival. The Marines bring me into the show on a tank. Carmen Electra's my guest. It's this huge event, two hours long, that I wrote and directed all the pre-tape bits and produced and created and we're we're and I'm I'm doing musical numbers and I'm doing monologues and there were some speech problems throughout that show even though mostly I delivered pretty well but there were some blocks and some stammery ways I was delivering as I watched a tape a few years ago of it a week later I do an interview with the campus TV station about that show and can barely speak and literally can barely get thoughts out and had to ask the editor to like put B-roll coverage shots over me spe- hitting blocks and touching my eye because I was so embarrassed and then. One month later, I graduated college and was asked to speak at my college graduation in front of 7,000 people. And so I was one of the most well-known people on campus at this point. So at that point, before you're about to deliver the speech, remember I asked you earlier how often it would happen to you and you said the majority of the time it would happen. Mm-hmm. To you. So at the point where you were walking up to the podium to give the speech, 
how often was it happening to you? It's so weird because it it would happen. I guess you know, still pretty often, but more sporadically. Like fifty percent of the time, twenty five percent. No, it was probably down to about twenty five percent of the time. Twenty percent of the time as as college approached the end, maybe even less. Actually, maybe ten percent of the time towards the very end. So you're walking up to give a commencement speech in mm-hmm. front of seven thousand people. Mm-hmm. And you don't know if you're going to be able to talk. No, for some reason, I had this odd piece about it, and I knew for 100% I'd have no problem. How? My speech problem just melted away right before the end of college. I don't know what. I just had, I think after that live Glebeshoof, and I, though I had that quick setback a week later, it just melted away, and I knew that I would be fine. I just, it was weird. I had this odd confidence. I was like, look, I created this show that nobody has created anything like it in college. It was successful. I had huge celebrities coming here. The final month of college, girls were asking me out on dates, and I just felt good. And And I knew I was about to go to L.A. and try to make a go at this business, and it just was. And I knew I was really good at, at this point already, at, like making people laugh and delivering things. And and at this point, you know, on camera, it was pretty rare. I'd hit blocks that were significant. I would be a little stammery, but I wasn't, like, hitting blocks where I couldn't speak anymore. But there you always knew you could edit something. Right. A commencement speech yeah. in front of 7,000 people. There's no editing. I wrote a real good speech. And uh, I just went out there and it was very funny and also meaningful and had some really touching parts. I, I have a video of it. I can send it to you. And it was just flawless. I, I wasn't worried about it. And I never had a speech problem again in any significant way the rest of my life to this point, except one time. <laughs> and let's talk about that time, even though we're jumping forward. It was an incredible moment, and I hope that the audience could see it or look at it on YouTube or somewhere. Because the thing about Chelsea lately, and being a panelist on that show, again, it played into the same thing as when you were in high school. You never know when somebody's going to call on you. Right. You never know. And you can be prepared for what you think is going to happen. You can study all night long, just like on Chelsea, for what the thing is. But you never know what's going to happen. And you have the competition of two other people next to you who you have to be significantly better than to get another gig on the show. Mm -hmm. And also, you have to be equal to the task with Chelsea. It was one of the fastest wits ever and aggressive and real jumps on any problem. And the fact that you did over 100 of them is testament to the fact that you kept delivering. But tell our audience, jumping forward, the last time something happened to you like that. So you stopped after that commencement speech. And then here we are more than 10 years later. Mm -hmm. What happens? Um, So I'm on an episode of Chelsea that they'd already done the show at this point, probably, you know, 30 or 40 times. We're in season three or so of the show and never had an issue on camera. And I was on with Bobby Lee and Joe Coy and two longtime friends of mine. I mean, Bobby Lee was the, third guest ever on my college talk show in the AV room. I did the smaller versions of it in 1996. And, but, you know, two great Asian comedians, and I mention Asian for a particular reason, um, because on that show, as you know, there was just no whole bars. I mean, nothing was safe. You had a speech problem, she'd hit you for it. I have a little bit of a lisp still to this day, she would hit me for it. And even though I really had a lisp until Chelsea pointed it out on the air. Um, and uh, no race was safe, no gender was safe, no person was safe. And it was a show you'd make, you could just make any joke. It was like a roast constantly. I mean, she'd make racial jokes. I'd make racial jokes. Everybody would. And so I'm on with these two Asian comedian friends of mine, Joe Coy and Bobby Lee. They're sitting on each side of me. And 
I knew I was going to be on with them in advance and we're doing some story about some guy in China, some company in China that hires American actors to, to pretend that they run Chinese companies, whatever. And I'm trying to deliver a joke I've planned and I just hit a block and I haven't hit a block in at this point, you know, six, seven years. And when you say you hit a block, you're trying to talk and nothing's coming out. Yeah, literally, I keep trying to start the sentence. And so I, literally I was like, yeah, but the guy, yeah, but the, but the guy said, the, the point is the guy, and I literally, and everybody's laughing. And Chelsea's like, what's happening? You need a glass of water? What's going on? And I'm like, no, no, no. It's just, and I keep trying to start. She's like, it's okay, man. It's okay. And then Joe Coy goes, it's his old speech problem coming back. And the audience is going nuts and laughing and screaming and Bobby Lee goes, relax, Ben, it's just TV. And they're both like piling on and Chelsea's piling on and there's this uproarious and I literally can't speak. And it was mortifying. And I was like, flashes going through my head like, oh my God, what if this is like my awakenings moment at the end of the movie when they go back into the catatonic state and I lose my ability to speak again and I can't anymore talk and I lose my career and maybe I have to go just being a writer the rest of the time. And all these thoughts are running through my head and I'm like, oh no, but those thoughts come very quickly while you're also trying to recover and figure out a way out of this. And Chelsea's trying to move on and I just all of a sudden get a thought and I insist on finishing. And I'm like, no, 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 no. And she's like, okay, uh, what? And I go, and finally I just take a breath and it relaxes and I go, at least it's not as bad as these two guys who are very excited to be here on Charity Ratery. (laughs) and it crushes the room Chelsea laughs hysterically Bobby goes you bastard you bastard and I just crush the room it's my rope-a-dope episode because I came from being against the ropes and just knockout punch and I had this already in my pockets planned not for this moment but for any moment in the round table I pull out from my pockets two fortune cookies and I go guys in case you're hungry and I slide the two of them fortune cookies and it just crushes the room and it was my favorite moment so I knew then again I'd always be able to find a way out of a block because the worst moment became the best. So when I at the end of the eight of the seven year run of Chelsea lately, she had some of her most recurring people come up with her at the end of each, of different episodes towards the last few episodes and share their favorite moment. I played that clip again of that moment, so that was pretty fun. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So we already talked about the National Lampoon show a little bit. I mentioned that, and you went through that, and you did that, and well, but let me say one thing about that about that National Lampoon show. And it's a crazy thing that also, you know, I know your podcast, really the point, a lot, large part of the point of it is to talk about this business and how to succeed in following things that you want. It's a long slog. Like, like whenever I see people that I haven't seen since high school or haven't seen in a long time, they're like, man, you're living the dream. Not to deflate them, but to give them a reality check. I say to them, yeah, I'm definitely doing what my dream was. But just so you know, it's not easy. It's not a dream job every day. It's a dream what I get to do. But it's very hard work. It's it's maybe harder work than what your job is. It's definitely a job you can't turn off. Most jobs you get to check in and check out at the end of each day and you have a vacation in your mind. I never stop thinking about comedy. I never stop working. Never stop writing. Always on my phone creating something for Snapchat or for Twitter or writing jokes or trying to do bits or emailing about possible future things or promoting next projects or whatever it is. And when I sold this talk show at National Lampoon, it was at... The, I was 23 to 25 doing these three seasons of Lampoon. It was a talk show that then became a sitcom with hidden camera bits and sketches and man on the street pieces. I wrote the whole thing with Scott Richardson. I directed the whole run of the show myself. I performed in every frame of it. And it was some of the best, most out-of-the-box, creative, fun stuff I've ever done in my career. And no one saw it. We did 20 episodes over the course of two years, three seasons, and... 
it wasn't on national television for real. It was airing to colleges. So college students saw it, some of them. But it's just the reason I say it is because you have to be even okay with that. Like some of the most prolific stuff I ever did, the prolific, most prolific time, came and went. I have all the footage. Maybe one day when I'm at, you know, when I'm when people hopefully see me as one of their favorites and and uh, and they were curious about my back log, I'll release it as a gunthy as a Guthy Rinker flash drive set or whatever the future holds. But um, no one saw these seasons. And you have to get past that. You have to still work harder the next time and work as hard and, and keep creating your next thing. And just so it, ha- it can't be about rewards. It can't be about accolades or an audience receiving or not. It truly has to be about your undeniable passion for what you do. You're undeniable. You can't, you have to have the need to do, you have to have the, the ability to do nothing else. It has to be all you want. And if it is, you'll be able to sustain past all the failures and past all the times that people don't see what you do and don't give a shit or didn't receive it the way you did or didn't get the jokes or didn't pay attention enough because your stuff's more cerebral than what they're used to or what they're wanting or whatever it is. You have to just believe in it and love it so much that just doing the work is all that really matters. Six degrees of separation. Let's do a extended version of six degrees of separation. I'm sure. going to mention a name of somebody, and I need you to just tell me what comes to mind. Could be one word, could be a sentence, could be a story. Sure. Lauren Michaels. Brilliant producer, huge to comedy, crazy honored to have my name in even the tiniest of ways associated with him. Never met him. He produced my show from afar. It was more his company doing it. SNL was a huge goal of mine. He created just the comedy Valhalla. Johnny Carson. The great, the greatest ever, the most natural, amazing host who I want to be, who has influenced, I think, my personality beyond just my on-camera personality. The greatest, just, oh, just class personified. Kristen Wiig. <laughs> Genius, amazing. Um, I got to start with her, really. Um, we were in the same improv troupe, the Empty Stage Theater in L.A., I joined an improv troupe when I graduated college called the LA, called the Empty Stage on Overland here on the west side. And Felicia Day was in the troupe and Kristen Wiig was in the troupe. She was in the group above us. So we didn't do shows together. But we would rehearse together and um, sometimes. And I just watched her on stage in awe and knew she was brilliant. I remember one day watching her and just seeing her be so fucking hilarious, like just in a zone and thought she was genius. And so I, that day, after I didn't know her well, we didn't like hang out, we weren't friends really, but I asked for her number because I wanted to cast her in something. I, I said to her, I think you're incredible. I would love to put you in something. I make content sometimes. Did you hand her your phone? I did. I said, yo, yo, yo girl, give me your number. Let's hang out sometime. Um, got her number. She wrote it in like purple crayon or something we had backstage. And I still have it somewhere. I don't know where it is, but and a year goes by. She left the troupe shortly thereafter. I left the troupe or one of us left. And I hadn't produced anything in that year. Didn't have a sketch to put her in, nothing. And I thought she was so brilliant. I just, whatever reason, wanted to call her and let her know. And I called her one day and said, Kristen, it's Ben from the Empty Stage. And I remember she's like, oh, yeah, how are you? And I'm like, I'm great. I just want to let you know. Um, and, she, and she sounded a little down, maybe. She sounded a little bit, maybe I caught her on a depressed day. In this business, you have moments that you don't, you know, it's up and down. 
and and she seemed like in the, in not the most maybe confident place. And I said to her, I just want to let you know, I don't have. I'm sorry, I don't have anything still to put you in, but I want you to know, I think you're so brilliant and so talented, and I'm pretty good at seeing when people are are good. And I just think you're incredible. You're going to have a huge career. I just feel it. And she seemed so touched by. It. I think that was how I knew that she was maybe in like a place where she needed to hear that. And she said oh my God, thank you so much for that, Ben. Like, that means the world to me. Thank you for saying that. And we hung up and shortly thereafter, she got Saturday Night Live and became Kristen Wiig. Nice. Kevin Smith. Oh man, icon, film legend, voice of our generation, one of them. Um, And a guy that has been a big part of my career. Um, You know, you get those lucky random moments that if you put the work in. I love the quote, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. And it's not just random because if luck comes and you're not ready, you, you're, you're going to drop that, that moment. But I got a call one morning that Kevin Smith is shooting this afternoon, his TV pilot, a Chelsea Lately type show. And the, one of the co-hosts or panelists for the whole show dropped out. Can you come do it? I never met Kevin Smith, huge fan. And I say, of course, yes. And I go to the studio and I'm taping suddenly a talk show, like four segments with myself, Arden Marine, Kevin Smith, and Seth Rogen. And it goes amazingly. We have this amazing time. And Kevin Smith and I both enjoyers of marijuana. Afterwards, uh, he says, you want to smoke a joint? And I said, sure. And we're missing his rap party for his, for his taping because he and I are talking. And he asked me for my life story. And I tell him essentially what I'm telling you today. And he's just, I guess, pretty into the story. And he says to me, um, so you're a producer like me, you're a creator. What are you doing? Just being on panels on shows like this and on Chelsea, you got to create again, man. I was already thinking that, but a kick in the ass from Kevin Smith really puts you there. And he invites me on his podcast halfway through the podcast. He asked me to guest host in his house. At the end of the podcast, he says, do you want to have your own podcast on my network? I said, yeah, it would be incredible. I have several ideas, including one called Last Week on Earth. It's a harder one to do, but he's like, Last Week on Earth? I'm like, why is it called that? I'm like, because it covered all the things that happened during the last week on Earth. And he goes, that is a genius title. That's amazing. Uh, that's your podcast. You're doing that one for sure. And he just gave me these green lights. And all of a sudden, I have a podcast on Kevin's network. He helps me launch it at number nine in iTunes. It's so high. And then I give, you know, he and Jay Muse cast me as one of the leads in this animated movie. I get an email one morning from Kevin Smith out of the blue a year later saying, Ben, I just uh, finished writing the script for Clerks 3 and I wrote a part for you. And to have somebody like that write a part for me was, I mean, it was an emotional moment. I was like, that was incredible. And it just had to be made. And I pray it gets paid soon because it's been pushed back a couple of times, but I'm sure it will happen. Um, it was incredible. And there's a bit of, of, of uh, insight, I think, into how to navigate this business there too. And it's something I've been thinking a lot about lately is you have to, without being a pushy asshole, you have to ask for things. You have to put thoughts in people's heads. Like we've said many times tonight that people don't always see very broadly. They only see what you present to them. If you don't put an idea in their head, they're not going to see you as an actor if you're not, if they see you as a podcaster. They're not going to see you as a comedian if they see you as a producer. And so... I was, and I first spent most of my career never asking for a damn thing. I just wanted everything to come to me. I wanted people to notice me on their own. They want to be pushy. 
And a lot of years went by of me probably not advancing as much as I could by just not being cutthroat at all. Shouldn't be cutthroat in a bad way, but be aggressive. State your, yourself. Make your presence known. And I didn't do it, but I was starting to want to, to work on that a little bit more. And there were two instances when I did it and it immediately paid off or so soon off after it paid off. I was doing a Q&A for this Jay and Silent Bob super groovy cartoon movie with Kevin Smith and Neil Gaiman, of all people who's in the movie. And Neil Gaiman says, um, I'm not an actor and I didn't expect to ever do something like this, but Kevin asked me to do a part. And I said, sure, of course. And I took the mic and I said, opposite for me, I'm an actor. I don't get cast in shit. It's very hard to get roles. And uh, so Kevin asked me to do it. Anybody asked me to do a part. And I said, yes, I'll do it. And I walk outside and Kevin uh, says, says to me, or I say, thanks so much for putting me in this, man. You know, I've been, or, or and he says to me in the alley, we're behind the thing smoking some pot. And he, he and Jay Muse say to me in the alleyway, he goes, um, Ben, honestly, Kevin says, I've been doing this 20 years and your performance in this cartoon is one of my favorite performances I've ever seen in my career. And he's worked with everyone. I mean, Ben Affleck, George Carlin and my heroes. And, and that was so impactful to me. And right at that moment, I just confidently said, you know, I'm also available for live action acting work. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, I'm starting to realize that. Like I mostly saw you as a podcaster and a comedian, but I'm realizing you're an actor. And then he sends me that email saying he wrote a part for me. I don't know that he would have, if I didn't say that similar thing happened one night. I'm hanging out with Chelsea we're all partying and we're definitely not sober. And she's talking about her upcoming tour and, and people she can have open for her. And I said to her, you know, you should have open for you. She goes, who? I go, me. And then she asked me to open for her a couple months later. I don't know if either would have happened if I didn't say it, put the thought in their head for what that's worth. With Chelsea having you open up for her, I think, and I'm speculating. So Chelsea is not here and she might say, Barry, you're wrong, but I'm going with the flow here. When you invite a guy on the road with you and you're vulnerable, we normally tour with men. Mm -hmm. So we see men out on tour and we see their most vulnerable sides, but we see it. We're guys. We see a guy. But when you're a woman on tour, when you're with a guy on tour and he's headlining, he might, he might come into his hotel room. He's walking around in his underwear. Mm -hmm. We're used to that. If you're Chelsea Handler, I would imagine you want to feel comfortable in your huge, unbelievably massive hotel suite or backstage in your underwear. And you want to be around guys who you feel safe with, who you know aren't going to be the weird uncle kind of guy, <laughs> the guy who's okay seeing you in your most vulnerable positions, whether you're inebriated or you're in your underwear or you're changing and they're not going to be like, wow, that's a nice mole you have there or whatever. <laughs> oh, I didn't know you were shaved into a Jewish star. That's really interesting. <laughs> Somebody who they can feel really comfortable with and hang out with like that. And that's a big testament when you get that call and be able to open up for her like that. Oh, big time. But I mean, Chelsea Handler is, I mean, I can't say enough about this person. She is an incredible person. She really is a one of a kind. It wasn't even, I don't even think that was an issue. We'd already, we already were pretty good friends. We already would hang out. I would, you know, I, we would do sleepovers at her house, you know, and, and, and we already had a very intimate, close friendship and, um, and we're very comfortable around each other and, and uh, 
I just think she is like one of the coolest, most unique humans I've ever known because like we said earlier, she's so driven and so funny. And I think she's the greatest and fastest wit of any talk show host. I think she and David Letterman were the two quickest ever and most sardonic and biting and, and sharp. Yet she was also so fun. She's like just a fun hang. She's just a really cool girl, loves having friends around her, loves partying, loves indulging in life, loves enjoying. And like, yeah, she and I have seen each other in very vulnerable moments because, you know, when you party with somebody and you're not sober around somebody and you, you know, spend a weekend, you know, either, you know, hanging out and then going to Pilates and then swimming and then talking and then, you know, falling asleep watching Johnny Carson documentary on PBS on her iPad. I mean, she and I became very close friends. So um, I don't think that was even an issue about her trusting me on the road. Um, we just very comfortable around each other. And I think part of that is is somebody that's willing to, you know, treat or able to treat somebody at that level, just like a normal human being. I find people at that level don't want to be treated like there's some special thing. They want to be treated like a normal person. So she and I would play ping pong. I'd bring my net on the road and we would talk shit to each other. And she would call me a weak Jew and I'd call her a Nazi bitch and we would have a great time. And it was just that loose. And so that wasn't too much of an issue. I did try to make out with her once. So it's maybe I, I, I bearded in a creepy uncle one time, but, um, and even that wasn't wasn't in a creepy way because we were just super fucked up and we were on edibles and we were playing some game in her hotel room in Vegas. And uh, and so we were like on one piece of paper together in the corner of the room and I'm just messed up. And I never really had a crush on Chelsea, but in the back of your head, I'm always curious. You know, I don't think making out is a big deal. And I'm like, it'll be fun to make out there sometime and see if there's a vibe there. And so I drunkenly and stonedly said, we should make out. And she says, uh, no. And I go, come on, it'll be fun. And she goes, I don't think so. I'm like, well, come on, you're this sexually open, liberated girl. Why not? And she goes, because it won't be fun for me because I don't want to make out with you. And I'm like, oh, all right, fine. And I'm like, can you do me a favor? Can you uh, not tell anybody that I asked you this? And she goes, that's not going to happen, Ben. <laughs> and I go, okay, uh, could do me one big favor. Can you please not at least talk about it on the show? And she goes, that's fine. I won't talk about it on the show. And I'm like, okay. So anyway, if you hang on there 10 minutes, I'm like, I'm going to go to, I'm going to go to bed. I'm going to go to my room. This is in Las Vegas. I'm going to go to my room. And she goes, you're not going to spend the night. And so I'm like, all right, fine. I'll spend the night. And I'm like, I don't have a toothbrush. She's like, use my toothbrush. And I use her toothbrush and we go to bed and and she's in her underwear and gets in bed and we have a totally chill night. She wants to stay up still watching late TV. She like loves to be up and loves company and loves to, doesn't like to be alone, I guess, in her bed often or didn't back then. And so she's like, let's stay up and watch the rest of this Rumsfeld documentary you want to watch. Let's watch, we can watch the thing you want to watch. I'm like, I'm going to sleep enough. You want to wake me up in the middle of the night with a massage? Go ahead. Otherwise I'm rolling over and going to sleep. And it was never even awkward when that happened. It was still totally chill, like friends. And when you party with somebody, there's, you know, Do you ever wake up and loose. you're spooning each other? No, we haven't. No, we haven't slept in bed together that many times. But the only reason I tell this story on the air about Chelsea is because I then we fly back in her jet, in her private jet to L.A. And I tune in Chelsea lately the next day on Monday. I wasn't on the show. And her monologue is the exact story of me trying to kiss her, her saying no, she doesn't want to me saying, come on, it'll be fun. Her saying, I don't want to fucking make out with you. Me saying, please don't tell anybody. Her saying, that's not going to happen. And then me saying, at least don't talk about it on your show. And that was the end of the monologue. 
Oh my god. Pretty amazing. Very unique without world you there. created without me there. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project that I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Idiot test on GSM. Yes. Oh, man. I mean, the greatest, the greatest match for my comedy, the most fortunate circumstance that, that I got it. You know, it's just weird in this business. You never really know where your fans are going to come from, where your supporters are going to come, where breaks might pop out of. And um, I guess I did a showcase many years ago for GSN, a live stand-up showcase that they got to know me. Um, because they're at, they actually just asked me in, in a week, I'm headlining that same showcase now that they wanted me to, to mention during my set that everybody performing in the showcase, it could lead to a thing like this because that's where they met me. And they started having me do things on their air over the years. And then I did an episode of Mind of a Man, this short-lived talk show, that D-Ray Davis, a short-lived game show that D-Ray Davis hosted. And Barry Nugent, um, one of the execs at GSN, says to me before the taping, you know, Ben, we really love you here at GSN and we're looking to find a show for you. And I thought it was just BS Hollywood talk. It was nice to hear a compliment, but I was like, That's not, I'm not going to get a show. They're going to have me a show. Kind of like a Harrison Ford, Adam Sandler moment. It kind of was. Yes. Yeah. I had a manager years earlier when I was in college, still a Hollywood manager that signed me and hadn't done anything for me. And I had a meeting in his office and he, to show that he was doing something, he gets on a phone and he calls some producer and he goes, I got a client here. He's a young kid. He's kind of like a cross between Adam Sandler and Harrison Ford. And I thought that was very sweet and such bullshit. No one has ever or will ever compare me to Harrison Ford again. Nothing about me is Harrison Ford. Like I'm, I'm the anti Ford. Um, so I thought it was like that, you know, it's just another like great, nice thing to say that is not going to pan out. And then about two months later, um, they reached out to you and, and me and said, um, we want Ben to host this conference room run through of this game show called Idiot Test. I still didn't think anything of it because you get asked to do like favors for networks all the time. And I was like, oh, cool. I'll do another favor. It won't lead to anything. And it'll be a day of my life that I spend, you know, doing cool thing and making connections. But you don't you, you to like like I said, because you have to, to sustain and succeed in this business, you have to care about the work you end up not putting a lot of eggs in the baskets of different opportunities that come because you realize 99.99% of them lead to nothing. And it's just continuing work and more chances to work. So I said I would do it. And then I forgot the date. 
it didn't get like officially like solidified in my calendar somehow. And I booked a rare vacation to New York and I never take vacations, but I was dating girl in New York at the time. And I took a six day vacation during the Christmas holiday time to, uh, to go to New York. And so the trip was coming up and all of a sudden I remembered, Oh shit, this GSN conference run through. I said, yes, so I have to call and say, I can't do it. So I called and canceled it. And so I'm so sorry. I'm going to New York. I can't do it. Called the producers of the show that they'd put me in touch with. And, um, they're like, okay, we'll ask somebody else. And then I'm at Hanukkah dinner at my house and Eliza Schlesinger, one of my closest friends in comedy and life was there with my family. And all of a sudden it popped back in my head and I was like, guys, I already passed on this thing, but, um, I'm just curious. Do you think I should, fl- I should fly back to host this conference from run through that, that I said no to of this, of this little game show called idiot test. Um, and my mom's like, don't fly back. You always fly back. It leads to nothing. You waste your time. You get so excited. It's no, enjoy a vacation for once. And my dad goes, I'd fly back. And Eliza goes, I would definitely fly back if it was me. And Eliza, I just have so much respect for, for her as a person and a comedian and her work ethic's incredible. And so another person who I'm drawn to that is very, very serious about her work and really gets it done and, and just very savvy when it comes to those things. The second she said that, I was like, fuck. I mean, at the time I was stunned that you were yeah. saying no. And you were adamant about it. And I was like, my God, this is not the Ben I know. I know. I finally decided I'm just going to do the opposite and enjoy life and take a break. And you were like, this is a great opportunity. You should do it. And I'm like, Barry, it's just I do this all the time. It's one <laughs> six day vacation. What's it going to lead to, honestly? And you're like, OK, I'm not going to force you to I'm not going to force you to do it. I've never had you so adamant. It's like crazy <laughs> to not do something. To I'm usually adamant do to do everything. You're telling me not yeah. to do certain things that are a waste. But this one, you recognize as an opportunity, and I, and I, and I wasn't going to do it. And when Liza said that, I was like, oh, shit, maybe I had a mistake. So I immediately got, got up from our family dinner, and I called the producers, and I said, is it too late? Can I still do it? I want to actually fly. I'll fly back in the middle of my vacation for the, for the day, and I'll do it. And he said, oh, we already asked another comedian to do it. I'm so sorry. And then there's noise in the background. He goes, wait, actually, I don't know if he said yes yet. So let me call. If he hasn't actually said yes yet, we wanted you, so we'll let you do it. Do you ever find out who that person I was? I did not. I want to know so badly. I don't actually want to know because that would be mean. Um, let, let the zen of that take over. And he calls me back five minutes later. He's like, and suddenly it was important to me. I'm like, I hope I get it. I hope I get it. And he calls back. He's like, the guy didn't say yes. It's yours. So I book a flight back from New York for literally just 12 hours. So I don't want to miss much of this vacation. I flew back for 12 hours Took a red eye back from New York, red eye back there. It was round trip, 24 hours, and literally only 12 hours on ground in L.A. And what you don't realize a lot of times as an artist, which you should, is that everything that you go in a room for where there's executives counts. Right. And what Ben didn't understand as much, and they tried to downplay, was that this was actually a test to see if he would be right to be a host for this show. Right. But it was never couched that way. I thought they were just kind of using me as like a placeholder. I didn't realize this was the show that they really were thinking about putting on their air. But you treated it like it was a test. And I think one of the things that should be noted about game shows, because everything in comedy, everything in our business is a different muscle. If you're roasting somebody, it's different than doing stand-up. If you're doing stand-up, it's different than telling a story at Largo. 
Mm -hmm. and hosting a game show and doing things in a test, what you don't really realize all the time, you think, oh, I'm going to go in there. I should be really funny. They're not worried about you being funny. They want to know that you can execute the game in the time frames that they need to execute it. And then if you want to throw in a funny line here and there, great. But the priority is can he drive the game forward in the proper way that mm-hmm. we envision it? Mm-hmm. And you did. Yeah, so I went into this room again on almost no sleep. I don't sleep well on red eyes. I didn't. I had a shitty. I think I, except for the last minute, I had a middle seat, so you can't fall asleep possibly. And I get there, and I literally am unshaven, and I have a dress shirt over my shoulder that I have to go in the bathroom at GSN and change into. I'm already a few minutes late, and I go out there, and I was prepared, but I was working off cards, but I was very prepared, and definitely drove the game. But I'll disagree on one thing: I drove the game really well, and I got us through it in the time needed. But I fucking rocked it comedically. I threw in jokes everywhere. And I agree with you there, but you will attest to the fact that if you were just funny oh, and yeah. didn't drive no, the game forward, you wouldn't get it. The game but if is, you drove the game yes. forward and weren't as funny, you still would have gotten it. Oh, I don't know. Maybe I still would have gotten it, but there would have been a lot of other... They would have maybe considered other contenders more. They would have looked at places. But... I. You, you have to really stand out. You have to really find a way. So, yes, you need to do the, the basic of the job and be able to, to, to lead a show and be able to command a show and command one where there's a lot of elements and there's brain puzzles and games and there's four contestants, two teams and bouncing back and forth and explaining the puzzle. There's, you're right. There's a lot of mechanics that you really have to execute. But what I did in that room also on top of that was I just... I mean, I, if I can speak not humbly about it, I crushed that room. I just, it was explosive laughter while also well executing this game. And it was just a magical vibe in there, I felt, for that hour. And I walked out and didn't hear anything. And flew back to New York, finished my vacation, and assumed it was just another great room. I've killed audition rooms many times in my career that lead to nothing. And a couple, few months passed. I ran into some GSN execs at some other event, and they're like, yeah, we're still, we're, we're trying to see if maybe the show might go. Um, we liked you so much. Um, you might throw a celebrity in there, though, if we pick it up, you know, like a bigger celebrity, but um, we thought you were amazing, and I still thought it's BS talk. And all of a sudden, I get a call that GSN picked it up for 40 episodes from the conference room. No pilot. No in- initial five-episode run. And how many game shows are there, Ben, that you know of? on television in the past 25 years where there was a person that was completely unknown to the national audience. Well, not completely. Seven years, Chelsea, lately. All right. But I definitely wasn't Steve Harvey at the time. That's right. And uh, yeah, they got it. And it was was just a real great confluence of circumstances. And again, that improv really coming through for me. Going um, way back to when you were a kid. Yeah. And the skills of studying Johnny Carson. And I think the way that he would host, I used a lot of what I learned watching him and watching Letterman and that balance of being, you know, funny and biting, but also not being an asshole and making sure people feel comfortable. It's a lot of, it's a real delicate balance. You have to kind of, I guess, pull off, but they, you know, Mark Cronin came on board to produce a show after that and Mark told me... Mark Cronin, the historic producer who has done so many things and so many great Singled shows. out and created all the surreal lives and started all of the... Started with Howard Stern. Started with Howard Stern. He's been a guest on your podcast. It was a great episode. I really liked it. And uh, said to me, he's never heard of that in his whole career, that they picked up 40 episodes from a conference room run through. And so I guess it went that well that they knew that I could pull off and 
carried the whole series. And then now we, you know, finished taping our third season. It's airing now every Tuesday at 10 and 1039 Central and two episodes a week. And I'm executive producer now and and uh, help create the brain puzzles. And just recently did a political idiot test. Yeah, too. did a spinoff of the show. It's the first time I got to create a format and be executive producer because I'm co-EP on Idiot Test, but executive producer and head writer and run the writer's room and hire the writers with the network and and create a, a spinoff. It was totally different format, different set, different different vibe, different format completely with two political pundits and using my love of politics mixed with my game shows, like The Daily Show meets my game show. And we created this format to use games and different kind of puzzles as a way into brief little political conversations, try and talk about the ins- the issues that are in this insane, insane election, things of gender rights and human rights and and border walls and all this insane thing. So it was really, it's been the most amazing run and then getting, getting to host, host upfronts in New York for the network and getting to be the face of a network. And now, I mean, granted, like, obviously I've been working for a long time. So I, I don't like the idea to think that I was unknown before I got it, but certainly I, I am aware when I went to upfronts this year and they have wrapped around columns in New York in this big, Paley Media Center building and we go in with with my picture on it and then you go in the room and there's four faces that are flanking this enormous huge stage that are presenting to the media buyers and and the and the ad buyers and it's Rebecca Romaine and RuPaul and Donald Faison from Scrubs fame and Clueless and me up on the wall 50 feet tall was pretty crazy because I definitely am aware of that you know, leading up until this show, I was not at the stature or celebrity status of any of those guys. Dave Chappelle. Amazing. Mad genius. I've been fortunate to do shows with him sporadically throughout my career. Just a real interesting, amazing guy. And when he was, when he left the, the Chappelle show, disappeared, went to Africa and he was missing and no one knew where he was for a while. He his first appearance back on any stand-up stage was on Comedy Juice. And I remember the crazy moment. I was in a hotel room in like Bakersfield or Oakland or someplace in Northern California. And I'm watching headline news and it says, Dave Chappelle reemerges on the stand-up stage after four days being in hiding on the Comedy Juice show at the Hollywood Improv. And I was so bummed. I'm like, what? One of the few that I'm missing I missed this historic moment. And I told it to my manager at the time, Felicia. And she said to me, Ben, you don't want to be the, be upset that you're missing somebody else making news. You want, you're on the road making your own news, building your own career. And I was like, Oh yeah, good point. So that was pretty cool. And gotten to hang with Dave occasionally over the years and a crazy moment too, from someone I respect so much. I was talking to him one time backstage at the laugh factory and I mentioned something I was doing on CNN and he goes, oh shit, cause we don't know each other well. He doesn't, I don't even know if he knows my name, but we've hung a, a handful of times over the years and he says to me, CNN, oh shit, I love your work on there, man. You're so funny and smart on there. And to hear a compliment like that from Dave Chappelle was pretty incredible. It's little moments like that that really make you feel like, wow, like not only are these guys that you get to dance with, you get to be in the arena with, but you get to a point where you're like good enough or established enough that like, they even have respect for you, maybe, is a pretty crazy thing. Jessica Beale. Oh, amazing human. Amazing person. 
I became friends with her many years ago. I haven't been in contact with her in a long time, really. But uh, I was a motivational speaker for high school students when I graduated college as my first gig, trying to make money and trying to avoid having to get a real job so I could be free to create. And I was doing speeches at high schools in Texas, in, in Austin, Texas. And my friend from acting class, Jonathan Tucker, great actor, um, was shooting Texas Chainsaw Massacre in Austin and surrounding fields, co-starring Jessica Biel. And we hung out in, well, first we hung out in Santa Monica, took me to her house and we hung out and then we started hanging out in Austin. And uh, she's just the coolest girl in the world. She was so down to earth and funny and fun and like, like shared her insecurities. It was just a cool, cool person. We just hit it off and had a great time hanging for like a week in Austin. And I then asked her to, um, if she'd be the, f- the first guest on my National Lampoon Talk Show that was at this time, season one was in some rinky-dink photo studio we rented from a guy who lived there in downtown in some loft. It was like the lowest budget, a million degrees in there. Her managers and agents and publicists all unanimously agreed she should not do my little college talk show. And she did it. And she said, I don't care what they say. You're awesome. I want to do your show. And came down and was my first guest for an hour on my show. And I'll be forever grateful for that. And it was so cool. And we fell out of touch after that for many years. And then a few years ago, Dane brought me, this is like, you know, at this point, like 16 years ago. And then a few years ago, Dane brought me to some event for Pantera Sarah, this brain book for this uh, beauty book for brain cancer of these beautiful pictures. And Jessica Beale and Justin Timberlake were in the book and we're at the event and Justin Timberlake's there with his wife, Jessica Beale. I hadn't seen her in, you know, 14 years. And she remembered me completely and gave me the warmest hug. And we're sitting there talking for 15 minutes, Dane Cook, Jessica Beale, Justin Timberlake, and me. And it was just the funniest moment. At one point, even Timberlake sees me and Jessica hugging and reconnecting. And he goes, so how do you know each other again? What's going on here? <laughs> like almost like a little protective over me. I'm like, over me? You're Justin Timberlake. Um, but he was so cool and really fun. And uh, Jay Beale just couldn't have been nicer. And like, I just, at this point, she'd taken off to like the ultimate A-list stratosphere of this, of, of, of the planet really. And she was still so down to earth, but like at this point I didn't want to like impose. I didn't want to. And so at one point she uh, came over to me and I'm sitting down at the table with Dane and Rachel Hunter again, sitting next to me. And I was hitting on Rachel Hunter because sometimes I like older girls and uh, Dane sitting on Rachel Hunter's younger daughter because he likes younger girls. And, and, um, and we're talking and Jay Beale comes over and like visits me. And so she comes tapping me on the shoulder. I look up and it's Jessica Beale and we're talking for a minute but I didn't even want to like stand up. I should have like stood up and talked and hung out, but I didn't want to like impose on her time too much or whatever. So I just talked for a minute and then turned back and faced the table again. And she's still standing behind me and awkwardly just like massages my shoulders. And then, okay, I'll be over there all night with Jay, with a uh, uh, Justin, if you want to say hi. And awkwardly, I made her feel uncomfortable and like insecure and walked away because I didn't want to impose. I thought it was the funniest moment that like this huge star, like, by me not wanting to impose made her. So again, that point about girls and guys and anybody, it's like everybody's just a person. Like that's what you really learn when you end up playing with giants is that everybody is the same. We really, no matter how successful you are, as Biggie said, said it best, more money, more problems. You don't become this rarefied air, different person. You really maybe have more problems. You have more insecurities and you're just a normal person. So treat people normally and everything is cool.
Last one, Zach Galifianakis. <laughs> awesome comedian, brilliant guy, such a weird guy. Um, and I haven't seen him in many years since he achieved huge stardom with all the Hangover movies and everything. But we used to gig together at the Improv a lot, and I'd book him on Comedy Juice, and we knew each other. And I remember one day, I'm at the Improv celebrating because Scott and I had just sold the Glebe show to Fox. Scott Richardson, my former writing partner, I created Comedy Juice with, and we started living in a, my parents' garage together, splitting $75 a week, promoting at the Laugh Factory what became Comedy Juice and what launched both of our careers. Um, and we finally, after years of hard work, sold this show to Fox, took our Lampoon show that nobody saw, and hopefully we're finally going to be able to make it for Fox, which, of course, never picked it up after we wrote the pilot, but their comedy department got fired and the slate got cleaned at another time that, like, your a year of work got cleared away and it was just for the love of writing it because no one fucking saw it that's for sure and but when we sold it that night we were celebrating and we go to the improv which is our home and the place that has always been my home club and the place i feel most welcome and comfortable in this comedy business and i walk in there and we're celebrating and getting champ like champagne or something and i see zach around the corner at the bar there by the window looking depressed as all hell and I go around the corner, like waiting for my drink or something. I say, hey, Zach, what's up? He's like, hey, Ben, what are you guys uh, celebrating? Is something, something cool happening? And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's really amazing. We just uh, sold our show to Fox today, uh, a talk show, sitcom hybrid show. And he literally goes, Fox? You sold a show to Fox? Man, that's incredible, Ben. That's just so great. And he was so depressed. And you could see... It was almost, I mean, he couldn't even hide, not the jealousy, not that he didn't want me to have it, but just the like depression that he didn't have that. And he wanted to be there. And he'd had a late night talk show many years earlier, Late World with Zach, it was on billboards everywhere. And then that was at a, that was a, you know, a zenith. Now he's at a, at an Adir, much lower place. And Zach Galvanakis was like jealous of me that day. And my show went away. And then he became superstar Zach Galvanakis. So it's just always meaningful to me because you really never know when you're up, if you're going to stay there, if you're down, if you're going to stay there. And even superstars had times when they were super not confident. And so again, it's, it just gives you that confidence to know that like, as long as you check yourself with reality and check in and see, do you have the talent? Do you have what it takes to make it? Like, be honest with yourself. Do you have what it takes to make it talent-wise? And then do you also have the wherewithal to persevere through a lot of ups and downs? If you do, then you're going to make it eventually because even the greats didn't know. For sure. You can't know for sure. Your proudest moment in show business. Wow. That's a hard question. I mean, it's a tie, really, between idiot test premiering to great ratings and to critical success and to audience success or idiot test getting picked up for a third season, which really made me feel like, wow, a third season. Now it's like a bona fide thing. It's part of TV history. It's something people love a tie between that and probably honestly edged out by getting my own hour stand up special because it's just the most pure. It's my comedy for an hour on one of the greatest places you could have a stand-up special delivered to the to the 
country. And after so long of trying to get, hoping to get that respect and hoping people notice that you're a really good comedian and, and to have literally me in a microphone when I started out, not being able to even speak in front of 10 people in class, me in a microphone being broadcast for an hour on international television is pretty exciting. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel your career to the next level. I will say my biggest professional disappointment was when the Glebe show with Fox did not get made and they cleared that slate of executives and didn't make our pilot because it was the culmination of all I'd wanted. And the, since I was a kid, I wanted this talk show and then did it in college for four years and then did it on Lampoon for three seasons and then partnered with the best person possible, Lauren Michaels and Joanne Alfano and making the show, writing the pilot for nine months, closing the deal, co-EP on a show that Lauren Michaels is EPing and, and then it goes away. I was just floored. And, at the, and it was during a very tough year on me emotionally. My dad went through colon cancer at the time and all these things. And, and um, I was just drained. And I didn't, I, at this point, been creating and controlling every aspect of every bit of my career for at least nine years at that point straight. And I just wanted a break. I needed a break. And so the way I got through that was to shift tactics for a while and say, I can't have to have this this like intense neurotic control of every moment of my career until the day I die. I have to be able to ebb and flow. And it came from a piece of wisdom that my mom gave me, which was sometimes you lead life and sometimes life leads you. And you can't need to always be in the driver's seat. So after that happened, I just decided to make peace with the fact that I'm going to take a break from leading it right now and just see if my talent and my ability to deliver when opportunities come my way can be enough to sustain me for a while. And luckily it did for the next many years. I got The Real Wedding Crashers and I got a movie and then I got Chelsea Lately and became a headliner as a stand-up comedian so I guess I'm doing a lot of work still, but I wasn't like creating shows and like trying in every way possible to like, I wanted just to also enjoy and also live a little bit in my twenties and, and gain that experience I could write about later and could fuel me. And it was so great to know that you can still have a career as long as you work hard when the opportunities come and you're not being a lazy bum and doing nothing that you can continue as long as each year gets a little bit better and you're climbing a little bit more every year that you're going to get where you want to go and you can always get back in that driver's seat at some point and say, let me drive again and helps, you know, Kevin Smith, while very stoned, gives you that kick in the ass. Last question. What advice do you have for the young person who's growing up in any town and has the obstacles that you went through and just trying to figure out how to get to the next level, not just as an artist, but also as somebody who can work behind the scenes as well and have that kind of career that you're having what i would tell people is that life is hackable life's a lot more achievable than you think it seems sometimes like there's insurmountable odds when you look at it that way because perspective is everything in life so when you look at it, that you're just one of eight billion people and everybody wants to succeed and there's so many odds against you in any given career and in the entertainment industry there's so many no's and so much bullshit you have to put up with and so much fakeness and so much putting yourself on the line and getting 
crushed down in any site, but in front of the camera and not. Creating shows, writing shows, you get fired, the show gets canceled, the show never gets made, the show doesn't get picked up. It's a web series, you're getting paid $5 and a bucket of chicken, as you like to say. And, um, and it seems insurmountable. And if you have personal issues, whatever your insecurities are, you're nervous, you're insecure, you have speech problems, whatever it might be. The advice I'll give you is to shift your perspective and realize that as often as the case with problems we see, the opposite is actually true. In fact, life is super achievable, super hackable. There's 8 billion people, yes, but all those people find a way, most of those people, a lot, great percentage, great majority find a way to make a living, to make it work, to provide for themselves. And if you're lucky enough to decide to pursue your dreams, realize that people want the content that you want to create. You're not having to like drive a, 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 a tractor up a hill with no wheels. People want that tractor to get there. It's just, is your tractor going to be the, one of the ones that get there? Some tractors are going to make it up and are make it up to the top. So you have to realize that you, if you use your, all your skills and have the kind of strong ego, that's a real ego that is able to admit mistakes, that's able to adjust, able to learn, not a fragile ego that says, I don't want to work hard. So people that work hard are assholes. And if I admit a mistake, I'm weak. No, if you admit a mistake, you're strong. If you admit, don't admit mistakes, that's when you're weak. When you try to cover up for your failings instead of improving on those failings and learning from your mistakes. And if you have problems that are more personal, they're even holding you from pursuing anything like a speech problem or like a fear of public speaking or like anything of that nature. You have to realize that you're far less important than you think you are. Your problems are far less insurmountable than you think. Because with public speaking, people's greatest fear with speech problems, I realized what was giving me blocks was I was so nervous. I thought that you needed to be perfect, that the people that make it are infallible. And it's not true. The Zach Galifianakis's get depressed and don't know if they're going to be successful. They're not some impenetrable genius. The Dave Chappelle's freak out and leave their show and say, I don't even want this thing I thought I wanted. And if you're afraid to speak in front of people because you think everyone's judging you and looking at you and all the lights are on you, get over yourself. The fact is that people are glad they're not the one talking. People are glad that, that they get to just absorb. They're, if they're there at all listening, if they're paying any attention, they're just there for the information, not for your speaking style. People have very low expectations. Junk rises to the top all the time. So if you have any talent skill, if you work hard as well, your shit can climb pretty quickly. Eventually, you're going to get to the top and then take one step further and realize that you think your, your dream is so important. You think your thing is so much better than anybody else. Fuck you. You're not any more important than a person working at McDonald's feeding people. He's feeding people. People will die if we don't have people giving people food. If your web series doesn't make it, no one's life's any worse off. So don't think it's such rarefied air that it's so important. It's just another job. It's one that you choose to want to do because your own personality wants it. So great, do it. But don't act like it's the most important thing curing cancer. You're not. You're just pursuing something fun that brings joy to people. So it should be joyful when you do it and take a step further back and realize that any job on earth, producing a TV show, doing stand-up comedy on a special of millions of people, serving people at McDonald's, being a secretary in an office, all of it is of the exact same importance. And all of that is of no real importance in the grand scheme. Because take a step back. We're floating out of control, on a marble, in outer space, in a vast, unknowable universe. 
You think your the details of your speech or the way you paused before the one fucking word of the thing nobody remembers five minutes later means shit? It doesn't. It's just a journey. So have fun. Pursue what matters to you. And just do your best. If you leave it all on the table, success or not, you're going to feel amazing about your life. Because the only thing that's depressing is when people feel like they could have done more. If you gave it your all, then you just roll the dice and see where they land. And I think you'll find more often than not that that's exactly what will make you succeed. Awesome. Ben, today you definitely left it all on the table, buddy. Thanks, man. Thank you for giving it your all on this podcast. This was amazing. Thank you, Barry. You, your podcast is incredible. I love listening to it when I can. And it's been so fun working with you over the course of my career because you're a guy who's so respected in this industry and you have this like great Zen way about you. And uh, one of my goals was to be on this podcast one day. So check that off the fucking list. Wow. That means a lot when you do something like this and you're trying to do something during lunch times and trying to make an impact on people. And because I know I love the impact you have on me. And I love the fact that you say I have an impact on you and your career. And it's so great to be able to do this where you can come on and now you're going to make an impact on so many other people. And hopefully that'll be great and inspirational for so many people. Thank you so much, Ben. You know how I feel about you. I love you, buddy. I love you too, man. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. And landing on Surfer8155, January 9th, 2018. The heading reads, Crying, Laughing in the Las Vegas Airport. Five stars. And it reads, I've been listening to this podcast for a while and I've not been able to write a review till now. But the podcast with Bill Burr released recently was the funniest thing I've ever heard. My flight was delayed an hour and a half, but it could have been longer because I did not care. This episode kept me company. Thank you, Industry Standard. Uh, thank you, Surfer8155. Much appreciated. Congratulations. You are a winner. And that wraps up part one of our podcast. I just wanted to thank my incredible partners, starting with AquaTrue, the revolutionary miniature countertop water purification system that works straight out of the box. Plug it in, fill it with tap water, and immediately turn your faucet into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You can get $100 off when you go to industrystandardwater.com and just type in the promo code BEAR and start enjoying the best water you've ever had and never buy another bottle of water again. And I Killed JFK, the groundbreaking film about the only living person who admitted to killing Kennedy. Go to IKilledJFK.com, buy the film and the rare interviews with five of the last living experts, and I guarantee it'll change your mind about what happened that day. 
and the Air Doctor, the innovative portable air purification system which will change your overall quality of life. It instantly removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and other contaminants circulating in your home. Normally $600, and if you don't believe me, check Amazon right now. But for a limited time, I can offer you 50% off. That's a $300 savings. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. And here's a preview of the next very special episode. Dane Cook. Start telling stories from a vantage point that you yourself have looked out upon. In other words, if you grew up in an alcoholic family, write a story about alcoholism. And maybe it was your dad like it was mine, but write, maybe write it about the mom or write it about the brother or the sister and start trying to write down and tell stories and create environments that you can put your truth into, that you can put your... Uh, reasoning into that you can put your actual reaction and self into um, gr- great writers, the Francis Ford Coppola's and the Quentin Tarantino's and, you know, Spike Jones and all, these people, they write all the time. And part of writing all the time is also writing your feelings and journaling and doing the Gary Shandling of it all or doing what I did with Mr. Jerry Lewis Things come to fruition once they exist. Don't just keep it all in your head. Say the words out loud to yourself in that mirror. And then when you're looking for the person that you want to create the next tier of your career with, verbalize that too. It's all about verbalizing. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, because you're going far. Life is for the dreamers, they it's never quite over till it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.